Amen. So I've read the story about the resurrection of Jesus many, many times, but it wasn't until a few years ago that a particular detail that I had never took, um, taken notice of before jumped out at me. I was actually reading Luke's version of this story where he similarly as Mark talks about Joseph of Arimathea bearing the body of Jesus. And then it says, um, it was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. I had never noticed that before. And perhaps I noticed it at that moment because I had just recently begun trying to practice Sabbath keeping myself on Saturdays and it was hard. I am a workaholic and an email junkie and I was having a very difficult time not working for 24 hours straight, especially if my sermon for Sunday wasn't done. So I'd feel stressed all day long because I had this unfinished task hanging over my head that I had to hold off on until the wee hours of Sunday morning. And what's the point of Sabbath if you can't actually rest? So the fact that it was the Sabbath was a significant enough detail in the resurrection story that all four gospel writers included. What would that have been like to rest on the Sabbath the day after your world fell apart. The day after watching the person that you loved most in the world, your rabbi, your friend, your Lord, the one who did things that you never thought you'd see, like the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the lame walking and sinners and outcasts being forgiven and welcomed home. The one you thought would liberate your people the one you put your hope in and gave everything up to follow. What would that have been like to rest on the Sabbath the day after you had watched him unjustly tried and convicted, taunted by the very crowds that he fed and taught and healed, condemned to death by a political leader who was too power hungry, which is just another way of saying too cowardly, to do the right thing. And finally, humiliated and mercilessly killed at the hands of the state in cold blood while you stood by watching helplessly. How could you possibly rest? What might you have done the day after? What state would you have been in on that Sabbath? We all deal with our grief in different ways. You know, we might imagine Simon, the fiery zealot, you know, kicking himself for being naive enough to believe all that Jesus said about love and inwardly making plans to pick up arms again. We can imagine Peter, uncharacteristically silent with his head in his hands, hearing the sound of that cock crowing over and over again. The women, like Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, who stayed close to Jesus in death, even when all of his other disciples fled, thinking about their final act of devotion to anoint his body for burial. 
But whatever state that they were in, as they wept, smoldered, sat paralyzed in despair, the scriptures tell us, on the Sabbath day, they rested. It's important for us in considering this important and significant detail of what the Sabbath was for the people of Israel. Genesis 1 begins in darkness and chaos, but then God creates light and order so that life can flourish. The story of creation continues to build day after day for six days, and each one is marked by that phrase, and there was evening and there was morning, until it culminates on the seventh day when it says that God stops and rests. And that phrase, there was evening and there was morning, isn't there. It's like a day that doesn't end. Now, on the seventh day, the story of creation is brought to completion when God rests, not because God is tired, but because rest is a sign that the work is finished. In, Deuteron in Deuteronomy 5, it says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. On it, you shall not do any work, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. You know what free people can do that slaves can't? Rest. The Sabbath was a reminder to Israel that out of all the nations of the earth, that the God of the universe loved them chose them to be his own, that he heard their cries and delivered them from their bondage to slavery. It was rooted in Israel's covenant relationship with God as their creator and their redeemer. And because of that, they could rest, whether they were in wartime, exile, persecution, suffering, Israel rested on the Sabbath. And in that sense, the Sabbath day was a prophetic sign of something greater. Olga Finn tells the story of how her mother during the Holocaust was separated from her husband at Auschwitz. And her mother, every Friday, would light Shabbat candles that she made out of margarine and threads from her dress. And she would burn those candles every Friday night as smokestacks burned. And she survived Auschwitz, but later she would say that it was her Shabbat candles that kept her alive. Rabbi Abraham Heschel writes that the Sabbath is a reminder of the two worlds, this world and the world to come. It is an example of both worlds. The Sabbath is the name of God. We are within the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath being within us. The Sabbath is a metaphor for paradise and a testimony to God's presence. In our prayers, we anticipate a messianic error that will be a Sabbath, and each Shabbat prepares us for that existence. It was on the seventh day that God gave the world a soul, and the world's survival depends on the holiness of the seventh day. On the seventh day, God stops and rests because the work of creation was brought to completion. But as I said earlier, it was like a day that didn't end. 
And perhaps for the disciples on that Sabbath day, after the worst day of their lives, it felt like a day that wouldn't ever end until when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They've been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. Andrew Stanton, who's the writer behind the beloved Toy Story movies and Wall-E, one of my favorite movies of all time, in a TED Talk entitled Clues to a Great Story, said, storytelling is joke telling. It's knowing your punchline, your ending, knowing that everything you're saying from the first sentence to the last is leading to a singular goal and ideally confirming some truth that deepens our understanding of who we are as human beings. The disciples thought that the tomb was the ending to the story. But God, in God's wisdom, in the very foundations of creation, planted the seed of the Sabbath at the end of the week on a day that didn't end until this morning, the first day of the week, the first day of the new creation that has come about because of Jesus who proclaimed that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It doesn't mean that he's the one who nitpicks about what you can or can't do on the Sabbath, but rather as the gospel writers tell us that he is the one who filled his disciples hunger on the Sabbath. He's the one who brings healing to a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, despite a disapproving crowd. He's the God who fills us and frees us by his life, death, and resurrection. And in Jesus, we are invited to enter into God's Sabbath rest, as the writer of the Hebrews says. The good work that God began in creation finds its completion and ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And we can rest because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. What this doesn't mean is that we no longer work. Rather, what it means is that we live within the Sabbath, as Rabbi Heschel said, because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, he fed and healed and taught because he lived in two worlds at the same time, a world of hunger and sickness and evil and death, and a world of abundance and wholeness and goodness and life. In the work that Jesus finished, death started to work backwards on this first day of the new creation. We know how this story ends in Revelations 21, that I saw a new heavens and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, the home of God is with mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, and mourning and crying will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. In the New York Times this past weekend, there's a, a great op-ed by Esau McCulley. He's an Anglican priest who grew up in the Southern um, Baptist Black tradition. And it's called The Unsettling Power of Easter. So the earliest manuscripts of this gospel in Mark actually end with verse 8. The women went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's not exactly the best ending to the story, right? And that's why you see this longer ending um, sometimes added in. But he talks about how the women did not go to the tomb looking for hope. They were searching for a place to grieve, and they wanted to be left alone in their despair. He writes, the terrifying prospect of Easter is that God called these women to return to the same world that crucified Jesus with a very dangerous gift, hope in the power of God, the unending reservoir of forgiveness and abundance of love. Christians at their best are the fools who dare believe in God's power to call dead things to life. That is where our hope lies. And hope is a powerful thing. We see a lot of like pastel colors and Easter bunnies and people's Sunday best at this time of the year. And I have nothing against any of that. But I saw this post on social media um, the other day that reminds us, the resurrection is not a peacetime truth for occasional feel-good religious nostalgia. The resurrection is a wartime truth for everyday, tear-smeared, blood-stained allegiance to Jesus. Hope and joy are not for cowards. It takes courage to live in two worlds at the same time. Mark's gospel ends with the women saying nothing to anyone because they were afraid. But that's not how the story ends. Today, we celebrate the first day of the new creation. And as we hear God's call to return to the same world that crucified Jesus, let us go with the hope in power of God and the love of God. For Christ has said, take courage. It is I, be not afraid, for I have overcome the world. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.